Welcome to CRISPR Unedited. This episode is sponsored by Agilent Technologies. Please check out what they have to offer. See the show notes for details. Welcome to CRISPR Unedited, a bite-sized bio podcast hosted by Anthony Adamson. In this episode of CRISPR Unedited, I'm joined by Pia Johansson, Scientific Coordinator at the Cell and Gene Therapy Corps at Lund University. And we answer your practical questions about CRISPR, learning about the differences between CRISPR-I and RNA-I. Often the on-target efficiency is higher with CRISPR-I. We've actually had several uh, occasions where we've had complete turning off. We discuss how to show if a gene is really knocked out. You need some functional tests. So it could be that the protein is absent or some downstream uh, regulators. If you have some genes that you know are regulated by this, you can look at that. And we talk about off-targets. Making the same edit, but having two different guide RNA, because then they completely negate the problems. You have to look at both of them, they have to get the same phenotype, and if you get the same phenotype, that cannot come from an off-target effect. All this and more in this episode of CRISPR Unedited. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast from Bite Size Bio. My name is Anthony Adamson, and I run a core facility called the Genome Medicine Unit, where, uh, as you might imagine, we use CRISPR-Cas9 an awful lot to engineer cultured cells. We make novel mouse models, and more recently, we've been using this technology to make genetically modified flies as well. Uh, I'm joined today by Pia Johansson, who is a fellow member of the CRISPR core facility community. Um, so, Pia, would you just like to take a minute to introduce yourself, please? Yes, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Pia. I'm in Lund in Sweden and we have a core here called the Cell and Gene Therapy Core. And we are actually producing tools for such things and most of it is research-based. So we make CRISPR edits in IPS cells and I also design CRISPR edits for all other cell types. We do cloning and vectors as well. So we also produce uh, lentivirus and AAVs and soon we might also set up mRNA uh, production in our core. Fantastic, thank you. Uh, well, a couple of months ago, Bite Size Bio hosted an online CRISPR methods symposium, which Pierre and I both uh, presented at. Uh, now, let's face it, CRISPR is a bit of a game changer in discovery science. It's, well, it's enabled cores like ours to be established, and it allows us to build better and more representative models of biology and disease. So, no surprise that there was enormous interest in this online symposium. And, you know, lots and lots of people out there were really excited to learn more about the technology. And many people wanted to get CRISPR up and running in their own research. Uh, and many more of you were looking for advice and tips uh, and hints on maximizing your success with the technique. So as a result, on the day, we had loads and loads of brilliant questions, uh, but ultimately far, far too many to answer in that online symposium. So we thought we don't want to disappoint everyone um, and that it might be a really good idea for Pierre and I to get together and follow up. And in this CRISPR Clinic podcast, we're going to go through some some of the many questions you submitted, uh, both during the conference and afterwards, and try and offer some advice and guidance, you know, the type of things that we might actually do if we were approaching um, uh, your projects in the laboratory. Uh, just a quick reminder, there's loads of really useful resources and hints and tips and tricks and blogs over at Biosize Bio's CRISPR Hub as well uh, for you to look at in your own time. And for those of you who didn't attend the symposium, I, I believe the talks were, were recorded and you'll be able to access them over there too at some point if you're interested. So uh, I hope you find this CRISPR clinic useful. Uh, if it's successful and there's enough interest, we'll think about putting some more in over the time as well. So there's a constant source of expertise for you to get in touch and ask for help about. Uh, 
Uh, but I think at that point in time, it might be a great idea to get onto the questions. Um, so, Pia, I'm going to come to you first. And you have to excuse me to look to the side all the time because I've got a, an alternative screen to be working from with all the questions <laughs> on there. <laughs> uh, so we've got a question from Claudia who's saying, I'm going to start my knockout experiment. And um, it, from the look of the question, it looks like she's trying to make her cell lines constantly express Cas9 using the lentiviral construct. And she's asking, uh, how can this be done? And does the Cas9 need to be inactivated at some point as well? Well, <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, the, I'm going to say something very often during this uh, Q&A session. It's like one of all, it depends on the locus, and the other one is that it depends on the cells a little bit. But um, so here it also depends, like, you know, sort of what type of knockout experiment. So, but generally, um, you can, let's put it this way, you can inactivate it. So there is this Kamakasi, Kamakasi or somebody, it's called Kamakas9 <laughs> uh, that was done, where you also, at the same time as you introduce your other guide RNA and the Cas9, you also introduce a guide RNA against Cas9. So that means that it will actually stop being expressed in the cells. There is, however, not so much evidence maybe that Cas9 is actually toxic or bad for the cell. So, I mean, this is more if you want to take it therapeutically later, but for research, often it's not a huge problem. But it does, of course, keep cutting. So, you know, you might not end up with the same population originally as you had a little bit later. So uh, if you can't go clonal, uh, or even if you can go clonal, you might want to know that this is what you've got and it stops here. In that case, you can inactivate it with a guide RNA. And you can, of course, also, if you just want to do a knockout experiment, you might not have to use a lentivirus. Then you just use a, another type, like a plasmid or mRNA-based, where you have transient, a, a transient effect, because with a knockout, you don't need it to be there for longer. That's like different if you want to do CRISPR-A or CRISPR-I, often you want to have it there all the time. Uh, but when it comes to this, you could actually potentially uh, choose to use another one or even use RMP via, via nuclear infection, for example, then you don't have to worry about those things. Yeah, so I suppose if you change the delivery modality, like you say, and uh, and that's something that you'll hear me say an awful lot, all, all about delivery. If you change that modality, do you need to have the Cas9 being expressed all the time? Because that's what lentivirus will do. Uh, lentivirus will integrate in the genome and will give you constant production of the Cas9 protein. I suppose just to touch on what you said there, you know, Cas9 by itself, relatively inert. It, it doesn't really do any damage in the absence mm. of guide RNA. So suppose one thing you could do is you could lentivirally express the Cas9, but just transiently deliver the guide RNA into the cells as well. And that might be a way to minimize constant activity of the of the Cas9 in those cells. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, so just mix and match that kind of thing. I wasn't aware of this kamikaze Cas9, but that, that makes perfect sense. You know, you could knock out Cas9 itself. Uh, so that, that's, that's a really nice approach. Yeah, I liked it a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think, you know, Claudia actually has a couple of follow-up questions as well. Um, and uh, one of them, it all they all really relate to lentivirus, essentially. Mm. You know, this idea of an off switch, um, this idea of off-targeting if you've got the Cas9 and the guide in there for too long. So, yeah, I, I think it is a good idea to minimise the window of the actual editing, but the Cas9 can stay expressed and probably won't have too many effects on your cells. Um, in terms of that window of expression of the, of the guide RNA, 24 hours is, generally speaking, enough to get editing. So you, you could transfect in the guide RNA as an RNA molecule into the Cas9 expressing cells, and mm. that will that will achieve the editing. Um, I don't know if you get experience with this, Peter, but there is there is definitely a risk sometimes with lentiviral transduced cells that you can get silencing of the transgene. So 
you may make cells that are expressing Cas9 all the time, but if you keep culturing them and passaging them, they may not be suitable for gene editing after a few right. weeks where depend on the locus that's one of the things you've already said but depend on the locus of integration uh and the cell types you're working with any kind of selection you put on there yeah. the, Cas- the Cas9 might turn off have you you've experienced that in the past yeah so I, I haven't used so much of the normal Cas9 with dead Cas9 I've used a lot of an antivirus and there we have the CRISPR I so then like it's in this, that particular viral vector is super good it doesn't get very much silenced at all at all we've used it for like four months you know into organoids all that sort of things but we also used the antivirus for CRISPR A, and uh, there it got silenced. We used two different ones, and they both got silenced really quickly, or like sort of disappearing generally. Even the next sort, they were not po- uh, not positive anymore. And then, in particular, we found that when we added the guide RNA, because CRISPR A is so big, you can't have it's difficult to have all in one plasmid. So we first made a little cell line with the, <laughs> with the Cas9 expressing cells, and then we added the guide RNA in a different one a little bit later. And then we found that despite the fact that these were sorted and supposedly pure, uh, they had already dropped a lot just by itself. And then adding another virus actually made the silencing even more, actually, of the original virus, not the second one, because that's mm. a small, very good virus. So it really depends on the virus itself also, it seems, and maybe what actually is in it. Um, so that was a big difference between things that are actually quite similar. So and in the same cells so so that always varies a little bit and and lentiviral constructs are are quite different actually from each other so one should try and dig around yeah, that's fascinating i mean i know this is a q a for people that submitted questions but i've got a question for you right now what were the <laughs> what were the effectors on the on the dead cast nine uh, for the the i and the a you know one obviously one silence and one didn't yeah, exactly. So yeah, exactly. So I had a crab on the uh, on the CRISPR I, and on the CRISPR A we had VP sixty four and uh, one that was VPR, and both of them were um, were silenced, and That's also it. made pretty bad viruses actually because right. they are huge. They were just on the border and maybe a little bit over, so it was quite difficult actually to to do that experiment. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's really interesting because we, we've done a bit of CRISPR I, a little bit of CRISPR A, yeah. not, not as much as you guys. So that's a really interesting um, observation, something I'll be looking out for as well in our own work. Um, okay, so I'll jump on to the next question now. So this yeah. one um, is uh, for you again, Pia. Uh, what are your thoughts on the effect of off targets? Um, are, you know, are you concerned about uh, hitting other genes, genomic instability? Uh, and especially with with a perspective here by look of it, uh, as far as the clinics are concerned as well. Yes, so for the clinic, this is clearly a problem, and that's something that you really have to investigate, like full on later. So off targets are a difficult thing. Uh, I've been in several discussion rooms lately where people feel like, yes, it's probably something we should consider, but it's hard to do. So I have two two viewpoints here a little bit, which I feel both of them. <laughs> One of them is that maybe we don't worry too much about them because if you, unless you have in a specific gene, you know, actually inside the gene that seems to be important for your cell type, and obviously we try to avoid that. But otherwise, a small indel somewhere in the genome is probably nothing really to worry about. Because the thing is that when you do clonal expansion of, I work mostly with IPS, when you do the clonal expansion there, you get really quite a lot of changes in the genome just because of that. So when we do this molecular karyotyping, there are really 
big things that are different, first of all, from the reference genome, of course, you know, that we are not the reference genome, but also like a little bit from the parent clone. And what we do there is that anything that is like a deletion or a loss of heterozygosity or something like that, that is up to 400,000 base pairs, you sort of accept. <laughs> so, so knowing that, I feel a bit like, okay, maybe we don't care so much about like a little indel in a random place. But of course, you never know. <clears throat> but this is also the reason why you use, first of all, more than one clone so that, you know, they all have slightly different variations in the molecular carrier type. But also why I always recommend, but this is not always used, is why you would use another guide RNA. So you make two different lines, for example, in IPS, one making the same edit, but having two different guide RNAs, because then they completely negate the problems. You have to look at both of them. They have to get the same phenotype. And if you get the same phenotype, that cannot come from an off-target effect. So, so that is like, I think, better ways to sort of work around it in a research setting. Yeah, in absolutely. Yeah. In a clinical setting, uh, I mean, obviously, there you have to test it much more and maybe whole genome sequencing is the way to go. And then once again, you have to, you know, you have to do the parent cell and then you have to do the edited cell. And then you have to see what the differences are in the whole genome sequencing. And then somehow you have to be able to assess what does that mean? You know, these little changes, does it mean anything? You know, so that will be a more complex task. Um, but of course, also, we have to remember that when it comes into the clinic, very unlikely is it going to be in pluripotent cells. It's going to be in a specific model system, specific cell type where you can sort of go, well, this gene is not even on uh, in these cells. So it's nothing really to worry about. So then you can also be more specific, whereas in IPS, we look at all of them. So that's my thoughts. Yeah, you, you, you touched upon something there, which I think is a bit of a kind of a, a dirty secret in CRISPR that we do these off-target predictions all the time using fantastic web tools that have been set up, mm -hmm. but they're all against the reference genome. Um, and the reference genome is not the genome that you've got in your IPSCs or in your stem cells or, or, or the cells or the mouse you're working with. Mm -hmm. um, so those predictions are going to be largely inaccurate, um, for, you know, well, to a degree inaccurate, I should say, not largely mm -hmm. inaccurate. Uh, and I suppose the case of Deagle looking for them um, and you can spend an awful lot of time and effort going looking for them. So those kind of suggestions you just made there about making your knockout cells with one guide RNA and then repeating the experiment, but using a different guide RNA to make the same knockout. That's a really nice control. Uh, and I think that's that that will solve a lot of those problems. I do tend to agree with you. Is this something you should be worrying about largely? Because these days, you know, we can design the guides pretty well. Uh, mm. We can deliver them using RMP. We touched on this in the first question. So that window of expression is really limited. Mm. That's been proven to reduce the likelihood of off-targeting as well. Uh, and as you say, whenever you culture yourselves, every time you passage them, you'll have more mutations in there. And that background de novo mutation rate will be ha probably higher than the induced mutation rate you're going to get from CRISPR-Cas9. Exactly. Um, it's mm. something that we never used to worry about. Um, and these days we do. I mean, speaking from the perspective of the mouse community, mm. people are making mouse models using mouse embryonic stem cells for 30 years. And we know they acquire mutations in culture. Um, but at the end of it, we hope to get the mouse model we wanted and then, you know, work from there. Mm. And, you know, no one really concerned themselves with, with those um, issues. I suppose where mouse concerned 
if you had a chromosomal rearrangement and an abnormal carrier type, then you would not get a germline transmission. The mouse would not be able to breed mm -hmm. forward. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, it wasn't something people worried about at the editing stage. Uh, mm -hmm. It was something people worried about at the breeding stage. So, yeah, I think on balance, off tag, it's a probably not as big a problem as people first worried about. You know, things mm -hmm. have improved an awful lot in the techniques and the way we approach things. But I completely agree that when you're talking with the clinic, and you're talking about, you know, patients, you know, what may be a really good guide RNA for one person in a therapeutic setting may not be a good guide RNA for someone else. And maybe in the future, we'll see uh, pre-screening, like say whole genome sequencing, that kind of thing established to make sure that uh, a treatment for one person is also going to be safe in a second person as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so let's have a look at the next questions. Uh, so we've done the off targets now, we've done, done a bit, little bit of delivery. Um, yeah, so suppose this question here, Pia, um, what can you do about guide RNA design if you cannot decrease off targets? Now, I suppose this probably relates more to maybe a gene knocking, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, because that's where you are much more limited if you want to knock something in in a specific place or if you want, yeah, exactly, do a snip or something like that. Uh, again, um, it's basically the same. Then you basically have to do it. If you're really concerned, then you have to do it with another guide as well. So, and if there are not another guide, let's, there isn't another one. There is just one, and that one has high off-target risks. Well, <laughs> then, then you have to see where they are, and you have to look uh, in, like maybe via PCR or some other method. You have to actually look in your cells if you have an edit in those uh, in those locations or not, and then you have to decide whether or not those locations according to your knowledge could cause a problem of course uh you don't really know that i mean people are like oh it's not in the exon it's fine but i mean i used to i worked a little bit with transposable elements and things so you know it, it there is no such thing as a safe locus really but i mean so you just have to make a, an assumption like this is going to be okay but also just because there are off-target predictions doesn't mean that it cuts there uh, so you can look at the ones that are look, seems most scary and, and look there if it actually has cut. But the thing here also is to, as Anthony also said, to limit the amount of time that the Cas9 is in there. So here, RMP is, is really a good way to go because then the less time it's in there, uh, the less of the fewer of targets you're going to have. So I, I think that's the, the two ways about that. I'll just expand on the RMP because both you and I have said it quite a lot. And just for anyone watching that's oh, not yes. familiar, uh, this is the ribonucleoprotein method. Um, we talk about delivery modalities quite a lot. This is essentially rather than genetically encode the Cas9 and guide RNA in, say, a plasmid or a virus, we simply buy Cas9 protein from a company, we buy the guide RNA from a company, we mix them together in a test tube, and that's what we transfect. So it's just the RNA and the protein. And as Piers highlighted, really uh, uh, efficient um, delivery method, really small window of expression and very high on-target activity and reduced off-target activity as well. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, we use this method across the board. I, I don't think there's many circumstances at all these days where we use some of the other delivery methods. It's pretty much RMP all the time for us. Um, I'm going to go back to what you said about you know, detecting those off-targets. So you mentioned you, know, you can do PCR, you can do sequencing, that kind of thing. <sighs> One of the challenges I think that's out there is there are some types of off-targets that might be a chromosomal translocation or a big okay. deletion, that kind of thing. And they're a lot more difficult to detect, aren't they? I mean, how would you go about looking for those or would you even bother looking for those? Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in the end, uh, once you're done, like, you know, you have, you, you need to check the karyotype. Uh, and uh, you can do that by molecular karyotyping or, or G-banding. And I think uh, a lot of people suggest that you need to do both because they're not detecting the same things. Uh, I mean, this is in particular with IPS, where we're very concerned about the fact that they have to, to stay completely the same. Um, so, so that one is one way to, to look for it. Um, what was the second part of your question? Uh, things like chromosome, well, obviously, you've large deletion of chromosomal translocations. Essentially. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, a lot of things you will see there. But what you also need to check, actually, uh, or maybe this is something that's come up recently, is this uh, there was a paper showing that a lot of the things that we think are homozygous edits are actually hemizygous edits. <laughs> so, one part, like one allele, has just been cut out. And obviously, for a lot of things, that could cause problems. For some things, maybe not. Maybe it doesn't matter. It depends on where it is. But then what you can do there is that you have to find a way to, to look for that as well. And often this type of SNP arrays that the molecular karyotyping uh, will find that. Uh, the the G-banding like will probably not find it, but the other ones might find it. But if you're specifically, you know, you can look around your edit site and you have to do some sort of serial quantitative PCR, either digital droplet or some other quantitative way, or some genome sequencing. If you do NGS, you can do paired sequencing, and then you should see the difference. Um, we don't know how common it is anymore. I mean, in that paper, they showed that it was quite common, but the majority of that was happening when you delivered Cas9 with the plasmid. But I mean, uh, a couple of, of these networks are like the core use stem, for example, where different core uh, facilities that work with IPS uh, have gathered in Europe. And, and what we're going to do there is that we're going to look at all our lines and see if we can actually detect this in any of them. And the, uh, with the ones that are made with RMP, for example, if it's a small change, um, then we will see if we can detect it anywhere. So maybe if it is a concern or something that needs to be introduced to the standard uh, quality control uh, sort of uh, panel or not. So that's something we're going to look into a little bit. When you use plasmid, it's a bigger risk for sure, but often that means that you often want to introduce something that is heterozygous anyway. Uh, and in that case, you, of course, sort of, yeah, often when you see that it's heterozygous, then that's good. <laughs> that means that you have the other allele still there. So maybe that's the way to go also with uh, with big insertions that you go for the heterozygous because then you know that the other one is still there. But it's a little bit tricky because normal sequencing, like a normal sign sequencing, will not detect it. It just looks like it's homozygous, but in reality, it's, uh, it's homozygous. So that's a big new thing that has happened. But that's like a weird thing because it's sort of not really an off-target. It's a toxic on-target. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's fascinating to hear you say that because obviously this is still a relatively new field. And mm -hmm. it's great to hear that, you know, these communities are getting together to establish what is the quality control? What should we be looking for? Yes. And I certainly don't think that's set in stone yet. Uh, and just to go back to the, this on-target deletion, you know, this big deletion, the way obviously it wipes out a primer site. So if you do a, a PCR, you think, oh, I've got a homozygous um, colony or homozygous mouse. And we've seen this a lot in mice as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, in mice, it's actually easier to detect because when we have our founder mouse and we think, oh, we've got the homozygous point mutation, um, we breed it forward to the wild type mouse and we only see the point mutation in half the, the litter. So clearly we know that um, it was not a homozygous founder. It was probably heterozygous, and we just were not detecting that change as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think actually in in the mouse community, this has been 
uh, well observed for, for a number of years now as well. And now we are seeing it as well in people working cell lines. I have to say, you know, sometimes it's easier to make a mouse than it is to make a cell line because we can breed out a lot. You know, if we have potential worries about off targets, we can breed them away. If we want to have um, homozygous or heterozygous, we can establish our breeding pattern in such a way to get those genotypes. Uh, and obviously we can't do that with cells in a dish. So, uh, yeah, in some ways it's actually easier these days to make a mouse than it is to make a modified cell line. It's a bit counterintuitive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's fantastic to hear about, you know, the, these um, new drives to make sure the quality controls there. Because I think ultimately we talk about CRISPR allowing us to make better models. We have to make sure that those better models are what we think they are in the first place. Oh, yes, absolutely. Mm. You're listening to CRISPR Unedited. This episode is sponsored by Agilent Technologies. Please check out what they have to offer. See the show notes for details. Okay, uh, so let's move on to the next question. So um, we've got a question here asking, um, how is CRISPR different from RNAi as a technique? Um, and, you know, whether or not you should choose CRISPR over RNAi. Yeah, should I? Uh, yeah, please go for it, yeah. <laughs> Um, so the general idea is that uh, there are fewer off targets with CRISPR-I than there is with uh, RNA-I or, or other RNA, the other RNA type, uh, small hairpins and so on. Um, there have been papers that show that the off targets are uh, fewer. And also, often the on-target efficiency is higher with CRISPR-I. We've actually had several uh, occasions where we've had complete turning off. I mean, that depends if that's something you want or not, you know, if you just want reduction or if you want it off. But we've had it off several times. Like, actually, we see that the activation peak when we look for um, histone modifications is actually disappearing. Uh, and also, we don't see any RNA in RNA-seq, but that, that the activation peak is gone uh, is, is pretty cool, actually. So sometimes it's completely off. So it depends on what you want a little bit. But um, generally, uh, yeah, maybe higher efficiency and fewer of targets with CRISPR-I. So in terms of CRISPR-I, um, if you're targeting, say, an essential gene and you want to remove that uh, with CRISPR, you can't really do that, can you? Because you, if you knock out an essential gene, you're going to kill the cells. But with yeah. CRISPR-I, CRISPR have you experiences where you're able to reduce the level of gene so that the cell can tolerate this and survive, but it still drives a phenotype, something you can investigate? Yes, CRISPR-I is actually really, really good like that because you can actually dose it. You can do it with the amount of virus that you put in. Uh, so it's sort of dose dependent all, and also different guides. Like So we designed the, guide, designed the guides within a certain region. And often there's one that just doesn't work as well. So then you can use that one. So it's actually quite good. You choose maybe three different ones and you can choose different amounts of your, um, of your virus as well. And then you can totally dose it. Excellent. No, it's fascinating. <laughs> so, you know, RNAi was around for a long time. Um, it's still... A useful technology i do yes. tend to agree with you that it has been superseded a little bit by the crispr and crispr based technologies like crispr i um but it is a useful complementary assay to perform as well as the crispr um so you know Absolutely. if you get the same result from your rnai experiment as you do from your crispr experiment then you know you're, you're onto a winning result basically i think that's a good yeah. way of controlling for it exactly um okay the next question can we use primary cells like human monocytes or is this only for cell lines so I'll answer this because we've been doing a little bit of this. Um, yes, you absolutely can do. 
Um, there are obviously different challenges associated with different cell types. So with a cell line, generally speaking, you can deliver everything to that cell. Then you can easily, for most cell lines, isolate a clone from that cell line and grow it up and assay has that got the change. You're not going to be able to do that in the same way with primary cells. And our experience is, generally speaking, what we like to try and do is, first of all, optimize the delivery. So get CRISPR working as well as we possibly can do in that primary cell line. Mm. And then once we've got that, we'll maybe screen guide RNAs and we'll say, well, this guide RNA is really active at knocking the gene out. Maybe this one isn't. And we'll do that kind of similar thing that you just said there. We get a knockdown population of cells where we may reduce the protein expression level overall to nine, you know, to, to less than um, 10% of the original amount of protein. And again, if that's enough to drive the phenotype, if that's enough to make the cells change their behaviors and you can measure that change in behavior, then that's sufficient. But absolutely, it is more challenging to work in primary cells than it is mm. in cell lines. Uh, but you can do it. Um, if you are new to CRISPR and you haven't done it before, I would not recommend jumping straight into the primary cells. I would recommend, you know, let's get the technique established in a surrogate model system first. You know, you mentioned human monocytes there. There are monocyte cell lines out there like THP1, uh, U937s as well, I think. Uh, and we've successfully applied CRISPR in both these cell lines. And there's published protocols out there. So that would be my recommendation. Um, Pia, I don't, I don't hear you get any experience with, with primary cells as well. Yeah, so not hands-on, but I have designed uh, experiments for people with primary cells. And, and there it's really important to have a good uh, communication first. So you ask them exactly what is it that you want and what is the timeline here? I mean, I had somebody like, yeah, we take the cells out of the, <laughs> out of the mouth and then we have like seven days and then that's it, you know, something like that. So I'm like, okay, so we have to use RMP. There's nothing else that has enough time. You have to maybe be able to sort them because you can also use Cas9 that is like tagged or something like that. So at least you increase the ones that actually has the, the components in there, even if it hasn't necessarily cut. And and uh, and so you have to really talk about what's possible. And then exactly like you said, they have to set up the experiment first, like sort of trial version you know like try it and see if you can get the cells in there and also look in the literature a lot what works for your cells and this is always the thing i'm like i cannot really tell you how to live, deliver it you have to look into is it best with nuclear affection or is it like perfection we're going to use and and see if other people have used it and you take that protocol and and you you try it and exactly try different diets and things like that but but that particular one it worked really well they just sort of did it and and uh, it worked and and that's the thing also sometimes you just have to try yeah and absolutely. be prepared for them do method development if it doesn't work because this i often say if it doesn't work just come back to me there are so many other options like there are so many other things you can do so we can try something else but this is what i you know sort of think might be the best one to try first but it is also important like you say that you might not need 100 percent of the cells being like edited either like sometimes people want to put back and uh, cells into the animal and stuff and i'm like Maybe it doesn't matter if like, as long as like maybe 80% of the cells show this phenotype, you will see a different from wild type transplants, for example. So, uh, you know, you don't have to be 100%. A lot of things is, is good enough, you know, and you will see the, the change anyway. So I mean, that's, a that's a really interesting point you made there, because I, I don't know how I feel about this, but I spoke to some people in the cancer community who, when they're doing xenografts and they're editing cells in dish, they don't want clonal cell lines. They don't want 100% knockout because cancer mm -hmm. is a heterogeneous disease. So yeah. they sometimes prefer to have you know, 50, 60% knockout and then graft that uh, into, into the mice. And then they can see what happens over time with, with the respective populations of 
Mm. You know, the wild type cells versus the mutated cells. So mm. yeah, it, it's it, it's it's that experimental design all the time, and you design the experiment to suit the model you're working with and what you're actually trying to find out. Mm. And you made the part about delivery there as well. The, the follow-on question really nicely feeds into that. Regarding the delivery, do you recommend transfection with lipofectamine or nucleofection instead of viral transduction? Uh, and I think you've already answered it. You have to do it depending on your cell. You know, you optimize this based on what you're working with. Uh, typically, I would say we, we generally speaking, use nucleofection rather than lipofection. But yeah. there are some cell lines we work with that prefer lipofection. Mm -hmm. I assume if you're working in stem cells, you're all nucleofection all the time. We are, yeah. <laughs> Not maybe not maybe not well we are we are not very good at uh, at using like with big plasmids to okay. put in and via nucleofection is working so so it is working but we're trying to optimize that so what we're trying to do now is actually optimize a system where we need both rmp and a plasmid because it's the big construct to maybe do lipofection first and then wait and then do the nucleofection okay. for the rmp because uh, the the timeline is different between those components and uh, yeah so it, it but mostly nuclear affection but with a little bit of life affection as well so you stagger the delivery so you may well, yeah so you, you'll put the the dna donor in at different times the cas9 the guide rna this is our plan this is my yeah. plan because we did it all together and it worked but at an extremely low efficiency okay so i'm like if it, if they're not green then we cannot use this right like if it, and it's of course not all edits that turn on uh immediately in the ips so we have to find a better system and that was my thinking was that you know if you nuclear affect something the rmp is ready to go the plasmid needs to be amplified first so by the time it's amplified the rmp is gone so i'm thinking if we put in the plasmid first uh but we'll see how that goes <laughs> no we did that on one cell line several years ago and it did work but i'm not going to claim it was the perfect setup because we didn't do a comparison with it all at the same time so yeah, yeah, yeah. it definitely does work it's interesting you say that though about staggering the delivery because one thing we're currently trying in in our mouse embryos which we're a little bit behind the curve on i'll admit is to change the dna donor from being dna into being adeno associated virus so mm -hmm. we're actually using virus as the donor and in that situation we are staggering so we infect the embryos um yeah. with the virus that contains the homology insert homology and then we leave that infection to um, pursue for about six hours or so. And mm. then we electroporate in the Cas9 and the guide RNA. So it is a staggered delivery. Of course, with AAV, the big advantage is that it, it's almost like a, a self-delivering modality. You know, you don't need life infection. You don't need nuclear infection. It's job as a virus to infect cells. And the ITRs and the AAV drag it straight to the nucleus. So the donor ends up in the nucleus where it needs to be as well. And that appears to be really, um, you know, our, our preliminary data is successful. So, you know, we're looking to expand it on more projects. I've heard from other people in the mouse community that works really, really nicely. I think you, you can do it in cell lines as well. It does work in cells yeah. and, and, and stem cells. So that could be an alternative. Still staggering the delivery, but just changing it from plasma DNA into being a, a viral DNA instead. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, as, as you say, lots of people have used that. And I think it is a very nice method. The thing is, of course, that you have to make also the AAV in between. Yeah. So, And we do that. <laughs> so it's okay. But I think when we are trying to produce quite many cell lines uh, as a service, if we can get away from not doing that. <laughs> and also because, I mean, the AAV still 
stays in there also yeah. for a while so so we i try to get away from that but it is there as an opportunity to to do if we have something that turns very difficult to to deliver or so because it's a it's a very smart way actually to have it and then it's there at high levels and and, and as you say it goes straight into the new so it's it's very clever in many ways but yeah oh, i mean you raise a really good point about about those practical considerations that if you want to use aav as a donor is that a whole new range of skill sets you have to develop in the laboratory and you guys are well settled to do that we we are not we don't package aav we make lensivirus but we don't make aav so we've mm. ended up outsourcing our aav production for the, these applications yeah and for the mouse projects it seems to be cost effective um there is a big question mark over whether or not we're going to use this technology in our cell projects because i strongly suspect it will not be cost effective there we'll need more aav and it'll be a, a greater investment and like you say if your plasma-based approach works at let's just say you know five percent efficiency and the aav boosts that to ten percent Mm. Well, actually, five percent you could probably work with, um, yeah. and, you know, especially selection markers and that kind of thing in there as well. So, is it worthwhile that investment? Uh, and there's also the other aspects of using virus, and that you'll have to probably adhere to some local uh, GM requirements and put some application in for health and safety, that kind of thing. Um, and you know, uh, that could be a bit of a pain at times for people if you want to just want to do one experiment. So, okay. yeah, it's a great option to have. Um, again, tailor it to your experiment and what you're trying to achieve. Okay, so the next um, uh, question, we've talked an awful lot about knocking out genes here, but this is a question here, is it possible to knock out a promoter? Um, so, yeah, yeah, Pia, do you want to answer this one? <laughs> no. um, uh, I mean, yeah, sure. Uh, I think the easiest way with a uh, promoter is to, uh, you have to use two guides, so you knock out, like you cut out the section, so you don't try to make a, an indel because often it's much more complicated with promoters right it's not just one or two little things that changes it but you have to cut with two guides cut out the region that you think is the promoter and uh and that should work yeah so i mean it's that you know it's that how long is a piece of string uh, how big is the promoter uh, and so there where you're going to position those guide rnas i agree with you cut out the entire thing using two guide rnas is, is probably the way to do it. Um, we've cut our enhancers before, but mm -hmm. those enhancers are quite clear boundaries. You know, we mm. knew from um, the genome browser data sets where that enhancer very likely started and ended. And because it was in an intergenic region, mm. we could be a little bit relaxed about where our guide RNAs were designed. So that made it relatively simple. We also did it by putting in a removable selection marker. Uh, so we had a homology uh, yeah, yeah. flanked repair template that removed the entire three or four kilobases of enhancer. And it had a PGK curamycin gene in there that was all flanked by LOX P sites. So we could select for the cells that had the deletion. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, we could put Cree recombinase in those cells and remove that selection marker afterwards. So just basically gluing the genome back together again um, after the, the, the recombination to get rid of that enhancer. That worked really effectively. But in terms of promoters, if we're thinking in terms of the sequences that regulate gene uh, gene activation that are close to the gene of interest, you know, right next to the gene, then you're gonna be a bit careful about you know where you design those guide RNAs because you might you know you might make other disruptions as well. Yeah. Uh, that, you, that you don't want to make. I suppose in, in that circumstance, would you prefer to go down the route of using CRISPR-I, where you can modulate the promoter rather than knock it out. Yeah, exactly. I'm thinking that also, like how often, I mean, 
it's not so often that you just want to get rid of the promoter, but then also have the rest of the gene intact. I mean, I suppose that could happen. But uh, then if you, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a reason to do that. But I mean, if you want to like exchange the promoter, then that's sort of easier in a way, actually, because then you just do homology directed repair there. But uh, exactly, if you want to keep the keep it intact, uh, then it's quite hard. Exactly, then you have to just cut and be hoping that your guide cuts in a very predictable way uh, around there. Um, but yeah, CRISPR I for sure there as well. Then then you just sort of turn it off. But if if it's just a turn off that you want, then you can do that in other ways. You can just cut out the transcription start site and, and things yeah. like that. That is much easier. So it depends on if, if you're studying promoters. Yes, then you have to do it. And then but then one can also do an homology repair thing actually there where you cut and then you put in a nonsense sequence or something like that. So yeah, that absolutely. As, and again, I th I, you know, the, the question doesn't phrase it this way, but suppose maybe you're interested in a particular transcription factor binding site in that promoter that you've already determined and you want to know mm -hmm. how the gene turns on off, then yeah, you could do maybe uh, a single guide RNA generating indel to disrupt that binding sequence, to stop that uh, working. So you're not knocking out the promoter per se, but you're changing the way the promoter will mm -hmm. respond to different stimulations. And that's a really nice technique. That's something you can do quite easily. Just yeah. a single guide, NHEJ, you know, disruption of the transcription factor binding site. Uh, so yeah, we've done that as, as well and that, that will work quite effectively. Mm. Um, okay, so the next question, uh, I'm just conscious of the time right now. So we'll, we'll try and wrap through the last few questions here. We, we did have a lot. Um, so what is the percentage of cells that, that, that uh, are gonna get an indel on both alleles? You know, I mean, this is again, a bit of a difficult question to answer, but in your experience, how frequently do you get editing on both alleles? Yeah, so that totally depends on the locus. But when we do RMP, and yeah, it, it's, it's pretty common. Actually, in some ways, it's more common to have homo homozygous deletions than it is to have heterozygous. Heterozygous can actually be harder to get. So sometimes if we have a very high editing efficiency when we look in the bulk, so we look at like all alleles and then we get maybe like 90%. Then it's more common, I would say, that you get wild types <laughs> and and then the others being homozygous and actually getting a heterozygous in there. So there seems to be some level of all or nothing in yeah. there. And we found that one way to do it, if you get too many homozygous, is to introduce a wild type template as well at the same time to, to sort of reduce the amount of uh, homozygous clones that comes. So So that's normally less of a problem than the other way around. Yeah, so it's, it, it, I mean, it's great to hear you say things like that because that's exactly what we've been doing. And same <laughs> with our, our experience too. If a cell receives the Cas9 and the guide RNA, generally speaking, both alleles will get cut. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're trying to make, say, a point mutation, so we've had some guys come to us and say, we've got a disease relevant point mutation that is heterozygous in the patients. Mm -hmm. So they want a heterozygous cell line. What we don't want to do is get that mutation we want on allele number one and then knock out allele number two. We don't mm. want that. And we've done exactly the same thing you've said there. We supply two repair templates, one that will encode the uh, mutated sequence and the other one that will basically rebuild the wild type sequence. And quite often we put, you know, I don't know if you put like a, a, a synonymous mutation there to stop the PAM site, that kind of thing, so that you get a HDR event on both alleles, but mm. the template used on each allele is different. So you end up with a heterozygous cell at the end of it. And that, that's that's worked very effectively for us as well. Uh, but I completely agree. You know, if you are looking for a heterozygous change, that's actually more difficult to achieve than a homozygous change quite often. I know, I know. <laughs> Now, again, to come back to the example of using mice, it's great because with mice, if we, we you know we will often see 
say we're trying to knock in GFP onto a, on one allele, we'll get that mm -hmm. knocking to work on allele number one, and we'll have an indel on allele number two. Doesn't matter in mice, we breed the uh, knocking allele forward and we genotype the pups for the ones that have got the GFP and we exactly. just ignore the other ones, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah definitely That's more of a challenge in cells, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, so um, that's the next question. Is it enough to prove a knockout via PCR? No. No. <laughs> I would, I would, I, you need some functional tests. So it could be that the protein is absent or some downstream uh, regulators. If you have some genes that you know are regulated by this, you can look at that, uh, some in vitro assay, something like that. Yeah, I would absolutely. say, what do you think, Anthony? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think we, I think, there's a, a bit of a concern of mine is that we're going to get people in a couple of years time publishing knockout cell lines and they're not knockouts. Um, they think they're knockouts because the genetic disruption has been there, but that genetic disruption does not necessarily mean the protein has been lost. No. We've seen a few studies over the last few years now where, you know, we've got these genes in our cells through evolution because they're useful to us. And it looks like the cells are desperately trying to hold on to them in, in some circumstances. And they can do some really strange things like, you know, skip over the, the exon that contains the indel. Um, they can make artificial exons in the middle of introns that will allow them to start producing a protein product. So, mm. yeah, functional validation is, is vital. You know, Western blots may be using antibodies directed against different regions of protein, especially N and C terminus. If you see a truncated product on your Western blot, that could be a residual protein being expressed that retains some function. So your cells are not a bona fide knockout. So yeah, it is not enough to just do PCR alone and sequencing. The PCR and sequencing is a great indication to, to um, let you know your CRISPR is working, but the end product you want, the knockout cells, it's not an indication of that at all. You know, mm. functional tests are really, really important. Uh, and there's a follow-up question from the same individual who's asking, you know, how do you uh, what, how do you approach cells that have got different aneuploidies, different um, you know carrier types, that kind of thing? So there's multiple alleles to target. Oh, you mean like in some sort of HALA cells? Or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know. I'm like, I don't know. I, no, I mean, I suppose it's just the, the same there somehow. You just have to like uh, get all four of them. Uh, you know, you just have to make sure that it's it's all gone. Like it doesn't matter where it comes from, really. Like which allele it is and all that. You just have to. It should all work the same. So if there's more than one copy or two, then it should work the same. And uh, and then you just have to check that it's gone. Yeah, absolutely. So if you've got four alleles and. On one allele one, you get a minus two deletion, allele two, you get a plus five. You know, as long as you've got frame shift mutations on each allele, mm -hmm. and then you validate it, as we've just said, then with the protein level expression as well, as you know, make sure you do that functional validation, then it is possible. And we've already highlighted that if you get the Cas9, the guide RNA into the cells, generally speaking, every allele gets targeted. Mm -hmm. um, so it is, um, I, I wouldn't actually say it's more challenging to make a knockout in cells with abnormal carrier type. I think, you know, it works reasonably well. Um, for knocking, obviously, you know, you're less likely to get that knocking um, to happen at every single allele. Um, mm -hmm. Do you need an every allele? If you don't have an every allele, do you need to think about what has happened to the other ones as well? So, you know, these are these are bigger questions, actually, and ones that you may need to factor into, again, that functional validation, what you're doing afterwards. Okay, so... Uh, I'm going to move to this last question now, um, and this is about Cas13. And someone's asking, when would you use Cas13 instead of Cas9? And um, in all honesty, this is a great opportunity for me to say um, this is a subject beyond what this 
uh, Q&A is set up for about Cast9 gene editing. Um, mm. We've been using Cast13 ourselves, and it's great for RNA targeting. Uh, and there's so many derivative applications of CRISPR-based technologies um, for, for different approaches. And you know, we've talked about CRISPR-I and how we can knock down gene expression uh, using CRISPR-I. Cas13 can be used in a similar kind of way. You know, So we degrade the transcripts being produced. You may not get full knockout, but you may get a nice reduction. Um, there is a fantastic blog on the Bite Size Bio website on using Cas13 and how you approach that with some extra information um, um, about... Uh, how you might set those experiments up. But I actually think that actually brings us to a great endpoint and allows yeah. us to, to stop this Q&A now. Um, I, I'm pretty tired. <laughs> I don't know about you, Pia. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's been brilliant. There's been some fantastic questions. It's been really great to uh, to try and answer them for you. And yeah. if there's enough interest, you know, we're happy to put on more of these kind of events as well. Um, so for now, Pia, I'm going to say thank you for joining me today. Really thank enjoyed you. this. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. And see you all later. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to CRISPR Unedited. To access more thoughts, help, and advice on CRISPR, visit bitesizebio.com forward slash CRISPR unedited. Thank you for listening to CRISPR Unedited. This episode is sponsored by Agilent Technologies. Please check out what they have to offer. See the show notes for details.